Welcome to the Impact Investing Podcast from Circa 5000. I'm Matt Latham. And I'm Tommy Gillicuddy. Remember, nothing in this podcast is financial advice, and when investing, your capital is at risk. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of the Impact Investing Podcast, episode 23. This week, we're doing a Q&A episode. Before we get into the Q&A, Tom, we've got some admin. I love admin. Admin to cover. Uh, we've not done this for a few weeks, so um, you know we're turning up. We're recording this week in, week out. So twice a week last week as well. Yeah. Um, and if you are one of our diehard loyal listeners... Cheers, Mum. <laughs> we would like uh, some help to, to grow the audience, basically. Um, you know, pod doing well. We, we grow month on month. Uh, I think last week was a record week. and um, Since pods began. Since pods began, since records began. But um, if you want to help us out, you can do a few things. Um, Tom, do you want to remind us of a, what a couple of those are? Yeah, thanks for writing them down before. Uh, so you can subscribe, follow, and review the podcast. Really helpful if you review it. Obviously, five stars. Um, number two, you can share with your friends. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and share the post there. That's where we put most of the clips for the podcast. And uh, the last thing would be contact us at podcast at circa5000.com. And if you've got any suggestions for future pods or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us and we'll do our best to cover them. And that leads us on to this week, which is a Q&A episode. Um, so we've done a couple of these before. Um, we take normally about four or five, six questions and we just give our our highly ill-informed opinion. <laughs> highly, highly researched. <laughs> highly informed. Um, so question number one. Um what happened at COP, Tom? So we did the COP special episode. Yeah. Um, that was sort of a preview. I think we did record that the day after COP started yeah. or a couple of days into it. Yeah. Um, it's now all over for this year. Yeah. What 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 was the result? Yeah, it feels like the, the news headlines weren't as vibrant on this COP as they were previous COPs. Maybe it's because the World Cup's just started and there's, there's a bunch of other crises happening And it was at the a UK-based conference last true, time as yeah, well. True, yeah, true, yeah. So... I think the main thing, if there is a main thing, is that the what we talked about last time was this potential uh, loss and damage fund that's been set up predominantly by uh, wealthy countries um, to uh, help poor countries who've faced, uh, already faced damage um, from, from climate change in some way. So there was, there was a report by 55 vulnerable com- uh, countries that estimated their combined climate link losses over the last two decades being around 525 billion US dollars, which was about 20% of the collective gross domestic product um, over that time. And so the idea is that the, the, the richer countries uh, band together, set up a fund, and then that helps the, the, the poorer countries um, with the loss in damage that they've already faced. This is not like future damage. Some yeah. of it will go to that, but it's stuff that they're already kind of facing. Um, some interesting points were that during COP, you know, the US and the European Union had originally resisted the argument, um, fearing you know spiraling liabilities of how much they'll have to contribute to this fund. But their position has changed during the COP, and, and now and now they back it, which is good. Um, but quite interestingly, China is still classified as a developing country by the UN, right. and so at the moment isn't looking like they're going to pay into it. But they're the biggest you know, carbon emitter yeah. in the world. Um, and so the EU tr- and the US and everyone else is trying to pressurize China to to contribute to it, but remains to be seen whether they will or not. And at the moment, there's not a great load of details about what the fund, the loss and damage fund 
uh, exactly is, you know, what, what stuff it will fund and where and how much is going into it. And there was a, there was a, there was a line in the, in COP, which is basically you know, all about the future decision-making recommendations will be done next year at the next COP. Yeah. So they've kind of kicked it out another year to decide the D de- we they figured out we're going to do a thing the details can be decided in 12 months. Yeah, and, and, it, and they overran the timeframes yeah. that they'd set themselves to get to even that point. So, I mean, for me, this feels like, I mean, we, talk, we talked about a couple of days ago, um, you know, and, and I think we said it's a little bit like sort of trying to work out who needs compensating for the damage of a fire while the fire's still yeah. raging. You know, yeah. this, this, this narrative seems to have changed from, right, we need to bring down emissions, we need to stop global temperatures rising, to... Right. Well, who's going to be most affected, and how can we yeah, how can yeah, we sort yeah. out a compensation mechanism? Yeah. That's. I'm not saying that bit isn't important, but yeah. what is the point of doing that while you still while the fire's still raging? You know, you're yeah. going to put the fire out at some point, yeah. and then you can start to look at how you how you compensate and rebuild, yeah. um, and not necessarily completely sequentially, but you know, it seems like priority number one is being being shelved. The headlines coming out of this cop are are around this compensation mechanism rather than yeah. actually further commitments of bringing uh, emissions down, which, yeah. I mean, I'd say, hate to say that, um, you know, take the sceptical view again, but mm. there was hundreds and hundreds of lobbyists from, from yeah. the oil industry at this COP, um, more lobbyists than represented. You know, if you took lobbyists as a country, they were the biggest represented yeah. country there. I think bar maybe one or two of within the top three, maybe nations. So, yeah. you know, what is going on at these conferences where effectively you've got two weeks of oil lobbyists going around whispering in everybody's ears. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, well, don't, we don't need to necessarily focus on reduce fossil fuel consumption. What we need to focus on is how do we compensate people who are being affected by climate change? Yeah. It's, it feels like, really a really sort of damaging approach to this and if it, if this captures the narratives of future cop conferences then yeah we're probably in a bad bad way yeah there's a, I saw a bunch of reports from people that were there talking about how this was the least collaborative cop um quite a lot of tension there obviously the geopolitical tensions going on but then there's all vested interest the oil lobby who you mentioned there was a big report of the Saudi Arabian influence on COP um, and, uh, and resulting in no major, pro- no major progress, really. I mean, there's something, but there's no major progress. And then next year, it's in the UAE, which is a huge oil and gas producer, exporter. And so it'd be interesting to see if we move anywhere, you know, next year as well from that. But I think that it feels like a turning point with the COPs. It feels like we're no longer trying to stop what's going on and trying to figure out how we, le- how we live with it, starting with the, the most effective people first. Yeah. Question number two. <clears throat> Slightly uh, non-impact related, possibly, <laughs> but it's topical. How do you think England will do at the World Cup? I think Tom? it's a very short answer. I think we'll win. <laughs> we beat the mighty Iran 6-2 yesterday. Um, Iran, you know, easily one of the best teams in the world. And so I think we can, I think we can read everything we want to into that and get giddy as we normally do as England fans. If we make it a little bit more about uh, the World Cup, um, there's one, I think we may, we may do more more of an in-depth World Cup related um, episode in the near future, but there's a, there's obviously, there's been a lot of talk about in the build-up to this World Cup in Qatar, a bunch of issues that we probably won't go near on this on this podcast, but Qatar have, uh, have uh, labelled this the first ever carbon neutral World yeah. Cup. And a lot's been made about the sustain the 
um, the supposed sustainability of uh, of this World Cup, which seems very very hard to believe. Yeah. Um, when you look at some of the numbers behind it, um, if you if 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 you look into those numbers, Qatar is rumored to have spent between two hundred twenty billion dollars. Um, 220 billion to 300 billion on the World Cup. They've yeah. got a GDP, an annual, an annual GDP of 180 billion. So that represents about 10% of their GDP per year over the last 12 years. To put that into context, the USA spent 0.7% of its GDP on NASA in 1966 trying to get to the moon. Yeah. So it's a huge amount for that small country to invest it's in. It's about a million dollars per head of population. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. For to put on the World Cup, amazing. which is a, you know, it's a, two or three week event. And you might think, well, that's what World Cups cost, but it's 15 times more um, money going into it than any other World Cup. Um, it's obviously in a very, very hot country. There's a lot of things that have had to go into it in terms of they've built eight stadiums from scratch, only, uh, but seven of them are temporary. They've built 108 new hotels. They built an entire new metro system under the desert. Um, and it's obviously, there's a, there's a huge amount of air conditioning that's going into the stadiums to, to make it viable for, the, for yeah. the grass to grow and for players to play. And so there's a huge amount of expenditure going into it. And when they talk about it being carbon neutral, it's very, very fluffy, the details of how it's carbon neutral. Yeah. I imagine it's just a huge amount of offsets, tree planting, et cetera, in the background, which, which, is, which is kind of a little bit greenwashing-y in terms of the carbon emissions and offsetting them. And when you look at the cost of what it's cost them, it's only expected to generate $17 billion um, in actual kind of revenue for, for Qatar. So it's a, it's, a, it's a strange financial decision. It's obviously a, a bunch of prestige that's gone into it from Qatar. That's why they, yeah. why they want to do it. But in terms of being carbon neutral, I don't think those, those claims are, have much basis. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously there must be some hope that, that the the attention that this brings to the country and the and yeah. the infrastructure they've built in terms of they've built a metro system from nowhere, they've built all these hotels, et cetera, obviously trying, trying to send turn themselves into, you know, a sort of UAE-type yeah. destination. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that will pay off for them or not, I don't know. But at the moment, it wouldn't look like there's there's a whole host of good press around what's going on. Yeah. Um, if you look at the... Uh, at it. Yeah. If you look at it purely from a financial decision, <clears throat> obviously those numbers don't make much sense from a financial decision, but if you look at like previous World Cups, there are only two <clears throat> World Cups in history, according to the, the Economist, that have turned a very, very minor profit. And that was Mexico in 1986 and the last World Cup, Russia in 2018. And so it's not generally seen as a profitable endeavour to host it. I suppose it's just attention, tourism, prestige, long-term effects, maybe, but the numbers don't really back it up. Yeah. Um, question number three is, is the UK windfall tax good or bad for impact investors? So last week we did our immediate reaction to the, to the autumn statement in the UK, which is sort of basically for all intents and purposes, a budget. Um, in that, um, Jeremy Hunt increased the windfall tax on the profit of oil and gas companies from 25% to 35% and extended that windfall tax (coughs) through to 2028 which is you know fairly lengthy time for yeah. what you know windfall taxes are meant to be a one off um you know tax on 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 ex- excess profits so yeah. um so he also announced an additional thing which is a 45% levy on electricity producers which mm. would include targeting re- both renewable and nuclear nu- <laughs> renewable and nuclear yeah. um operators so i suppose the question here is you know is it is it a good idea to extend the windfall tax both in terms of time 
on the oil companies and on on those on on those oil and gas producers. And is it what is the effect of extending it to mm. um, the renewable companies? Well, the major the major difference is that uh, there's on the windfall tax. There's a there's a super deduction available for companies that are investing in new oil and gas projects. Mm-hmm. So effectively, if you're Shell, BP, and you you start to spend on new fossil fuel projects, you basically get a 91p in the pound deduction against your tax bill. So although your tax bill on in in headline percentage terms is greater, you are getting this accelerated mm. deduction if you're investing in uh, oil and gas projects. The, 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 the rationale for that is this energy security rationale. Yeah. I wonder whether there's been some lobbying or campaigning in the background as well. Yeah. But the the deductions don't apply for new renewable energy projects. Right. So the, there is this there is this <clears throat> tax on the, the the extended the windfall tax to the renewable producers or the electricity producers who who will will have part of it as renewable. Um albeit it's for profits of a period where they were they could charge excess. Mm. But there's, there's not the same incentive to go and invest in renewable projects as there is to go and invest in oil and gas projects. For me, on the face of it, it seems like a total yeah. mismatch. And it goes back to what we were saying on the budget episode, which is there is there is an opportunity here when we're in this economic situation where we've got high inflation, our growth is stagnating, and we've not got loads of wiggle room for going out and doing big infrastructure projects and big big spending projects to try and spare on growth, where you could incentivize these companies to go and heavily invest in renewable. Yep. For some reason, the, the government seems to be against onshore wind. They're still pro-offshore wind, mm. and there's still loads of other you know renewable opportunities there that we could start to invest in as a country. In that same statement, Jeremy Hunt said that we were committing to our our yeah. net zero ambitions and that we were trying to reduce emissions by 2030 and blah, blah, blah. But this just flies completely in the face of that to me. Yeah. It's an incentive to go and invest further in fossil fuels under the guise of energy security, but there is no, there is now a penalty imposed on electricity producers, including the renewable, and there is no incentive, there's not the same incentive available to go and invest in renewable uh, energy projects in this country, yeah. which seems like a complete wrong turn, both in terms of the economics of it, the energy security, but also in terms of what that could do for growth in terms of, you know, turning us to a greener economy and actually investing in new technologies and yeah. investing in creating jobs in these greener areas. Yeah. So what does it mean for impact investors? Well, I'd go back to all those things that we've said in the past. It's the UK, right? So as a, as a global investor, you're only ever going to be you know exposed to a small percentage uh, of your investments in the UK. And and even if you're holding shares in international companies, only a small part of their revenue is going to be in, in the UK. But, you know, there's if this was uh, expanded out sort of on a global basis, you would want to see more governments taking more positive action to help support the growth in renewables rather than trying to promote and grow the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, it's like... Uh... It's interesting, isn't it? Because we watched the budget last week and then we did our reaction to it. 
Um, this super deduction obviously wasn't mentioned verbally in the budget. Yeah. It was then, but all, with all these budgets, the devil's in the detail, the devil's in the, the documentation that comes after. So on the one hand, he's presenting that he's he's very you know committed to our you know renewable energy future, etc. He made a big deal about the, the first nuclear power plant being built um, for 30 years. But then there's this super deduction on, on the side of it, which kind of gives all the big oil oil major companies like Shell, etc. a huge cop out um, from, from the windfall tax, which is disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. So, brings us on to question number four. Tom, this is your specialist subject, I think. Um, uh, Is Elon Musk an impact hero or villain? Discuss. I think we could do, I could happily do a full uh, day-long podcast about this. Well, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Let's, okay, uh, let's, let's 24 hours start now. relatively brief. I think it's not black and white hero or villain. Um, it's just a one-word answer, please. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, kind of. Um, so I, I started probably looking to Elon maybe 10, maybe 10 or so years ago. Before um, it was cool. Way before it was cool, and I'm happy happy to put my flag in the ground on that. Um, cool or not cool, actually. No one really talked about him, it seemed, back then. And uh, at that time, I would have firmly argued that he was undoubtedly an impact hero at that point. Um, if you look at his history up until, you know, 10 years ago, he was a, he was a guy with his brother who started Zip2, which was Yellow Pages uh, online for the dot-com boom. Yeah. Sold that, made 20 million. Used that 20 million to start a company called X.com, which basically became PayPal. So, merged with yeah, the PayPal team, yeah. Digital online currencies, uh, a digital online payment system. Um, he sold that and made 200 million. And then he used that 200 million um, the majority of it went into launching SpaceX, whose mission is to make us a multiplanetary species, um, because Elon Musk thinks, and I think it's a, a scientifically rational argument, that at some point Earth will face an extinction event, and he doesn't want humans to go extinct. So the, on, the biggest way we can avoid that is by putting us on Mars. You can disagree with that as an impact case or not, um, but he's very, very firm in why he thinks that will happen from a prob- prob- uh, probability point of view. Yeah, the impact argument against that is, why are all these billionaires you yeah. know, doing their best to try and create escape pods to another planet yeah. rather than focusing their efforts on, uh, on solving I don't problems think they are. we I face don't here? I think, I think Elon is doing that. I think Jeff Bezos is actually using his company to mine space yeah. and bring back down minerals to space, and Richard Branson just likes attention. So I think I think <laughs> Elon's in that. Is a, is a, the others are not about multiplanetary species. That's what Elon is about. Now, you can disagree with that or not, but that's his reasons for doing yeah. it. The others are in more like space tourism. Yeah, space t- yeah Branson's space tourism and Bezos' space resources. Um, And then whilst he was doing that, he then used some of his other money to be an early stage investor in Tesla, but the, but the, the founding uh, leadership was no good, so he basically installed himself. He as took CEO. a majority stake in that company early yeah. on, didn't he? Yeah. And then he, and then he grew that. So then then Tesla bought Solar City, which was run by his cousin, which is a solar panel company. And then SpaceX developed Starlink, which is bringing internet to populations all around the world. And then as he's kind of gone on through time, he's then set up Neuralink, which is developing a machine brain interface. So the idea is that it's a lace sitting on your brain, so you can tap into the power of AI on, on yeah. the online world. And the initial objective of that company is actually to try and solve, uh, you know, brain health issues yes. initially, initially before yeah. it starts to become how do we interface with yes. with AI and things like yeah. that. Yeah, and then simultaneously set up OpenAI because Musk is concerned about 
the potential that AI could have negative impacts on humanity. And so he set up OpenAI and to a lesser extent Neuralink to research safe AI and make our AI future one that's inclusive and safe for all of humanity. And this is not not-for-profit organization. OpenAI is not for profit, yeah. yeah. He has the Musk Foundation, which is his grant-making foundation, which grants for renewable energy companies, education in science and engineering, space exploration and safe AI. And then he set up the boring company, really to try and tackle traffic in California. And flamethrowers. And he did the flamethrowers, and he's very good at marketing. And now, obviously, he's bought Twitter. I think the Twitter thing, I've said previously, is like it seems like a bit of a non-core thing. But I think what I think it's very, very easy for people that don't understand his entrepreneurial background to go, he is a bad guy because all they see is him tweeting. I think he's. I, th- I think I would still make this argument to this day that he's the greatest company builder of our lifetimes. I don't think anybody has uh, risked that much capital of their own money and, and, and started and succeeded at so many different companies in different disciplines. Electric vehicles and, and rockets are not easy companies to build and he's done them amazingly well. And electric vehicles seems obvious now. Obvious now. But when, when he was first buying those Lotus cars and fitting them with batteries and calling yeah. them the roadster, that was, that was you know, electric vehicles, you know, we'd had like, what, Sinclair C5 and the yeah. G-Wiz before then. It wasn't I mean, seen as viable these, in, terms of trans- <laughs> in, terms of, um, in terms of the car industry. And now every single car manufacturer is developing a Tesla equivalent. Yeah. Some of them well, some of them not well, but he, he has genuinely changed that industry. And that was his stated goal was to, was to bring that industry forward from a climate perspective. And so I think when you take it all on like a, a, net, a net basis, I would still make an argument that he is a net positive impact in terms yeah. of his businesses and his uh, entrepreneurial endeavours. Now, him as a person, I'm not that interested. And I think you can talk about and analyse him as a person all day if you want. Yeah. But his businesses that he's set up and that he's running and he's scaled, I think, um, are all um, a net positive. Um, yeah, and if you look at, you just go down the list again there, so like, you know, Tesla, huge market share in electric vehicles. The argument there is electric vehicle is only as, um, you know, clean as the energy you put into it. However, the other argument there is that even if you are, charging it up using fossil fuels, it's that clean. generation way cleaner, is, yeah. is way more efficient yeah. than it is to take those fossil fuels, convert them into petrol, yeah. and then and then burn the petrol. Yeah. Um, obviously, that he's then built a lot of the infrastructure around that, invested massively into solar with Solar City. Yeah. SpaceX, there's a... There's a there's an impact argument mission behind that company, even though firing rockets into space isn't it's necessarily yeah. impactful. However, we already do that and he's created reusable yes. <laughs> rocket rockets, so that's that's a less wasteful uh, thing. Starlink, the satellite internet, yeah. is obviously bringing internet to places where it's previously unavailable yeah. or even turned off, yeah. like places like Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine um, recently did it. Yeah. Um, Neuralink, obviously there's a huge health impact behind that, and it's one of those things that, you know, huge R&D spend up front, yeah. And then you know how do you how do you make a, a practical uh, use of it? AI. He's called for regulation in that space. He's obviously he's set that was a not for profit because he thinks that AI is potentially dangerous but potentially hugely impactful. Yeah. Um, boring company, less of a thing. He spends two, sort of less than two percent of his time on that anyway. And then Twitter for me is the is the interesting one because what he has now is is an ability to control a lot of the news and the narrative. Mm. And, you know, the most recent move there of putting Trump back on Twitter, you know, Trump coincided with Trump saying he would support a mission to Mars through through yeah. the government spending. I think it's really interesting there how he uses that newfound power he's got with Twitter because 
it's that's that's how you influence governments that's how you influence policies that's how you influence the news agenda um all of his previous companies have a sort of there's an impactful thread throughout them twitter is is obviously free speech is the impactful thread that he's trying to present there but that is a big one where he could he could really sort of start to change things yeah um politically and that that you know we know how much that has a knock-on effect to things like the climate um and other big issues so he also came out recently on twitter and said he was voting republicans in the in the midterms so that there may be some Trump link there, but yeah. I think it remains to be seen, you know, in the future how we, how he's viewed. But I think up until this point, on a net basis, his entrepreneurial side has, has been a massive positive impact in in a number of different industries. And I think a lot of the criticism that's aimed at it is aimed at purely his tweets and how he behaves on a personal level and not taking in the total picture. And anyone who's tried to run and start a business knows how hard it is to scale one business and make it successful, let alone a handful. Yeah, we don't hear much of that. Part of you how, never get that narrative. Yeah. You never get that narrative in the press. Um, final question, Tom. If we can keep the Elon <laughs> discussions under an hour. Um, final question is: Can crypto ever form part of an impact portfolio? I would uh, never say never. I think in in the current form, no. Um, and the reasons for no, I would I, I highlight. There's both impact reasons, and then there's other investment reasons. Yeah. When you're thinking about an overall portfolio, the impact side of things is the, the first thing. It, there's, it's been publicised how how uh, energy intensive it is to mine cryptocurrencies, um, and that that is all about the computing power that goes into it. Yeah. You know, they're, they're saying that the, the, the Bitcoin. Um, energy intensity is bigger than some the carbon footprint of some small countries. Um, and so a lot of cryptocurrencies are now moving from proof of uh, proof of work to proof of stake. That's a podcast in its own right. Yeah. Um, but they're moving to less energy intensive forms of mining uh, cryptocurrencies, which is a positive step. Um, so that's one angle is the energy intensity. Um, the other angle from an impact perspective is what does it do? Just because it's a neutral energy intensity doesn't mean it's an impact investment. Yeah. Now, you, you, you could have a carbon neutral version of Bitcoin or Ethereum, still not an impact investment because the investment itself is not designed to solve any major world problems. Yeah. Some crypto enthusiasts would completely disagree with that, but I don't think it, I don't think it passes the impact threshold. Now, there's, there's some kind of minor coins that are out there that are are directly relinked to some kind of climate related um, yeah. climate related endeavor. These are called like green crypto or clean crypto. The problem with those cryptocurrencies, and then it comes on to the kind of more financial related um, elements of the conversation, which is risk. They tend to be ha- even riskier than Bitcoin and Ethereum because they're smaller. Because they're smaller, they tend to be way less liquid even than Bitcoin yeah. and Ethereum. So you've got that. And then the, the argument with all of them is you're, in, you're making an investment. What is the returns case for in investing in a cryptocurrency? Yeah. It's still a little bit woolly. I mean, I think a lot of crypto people would put together a case, but they often don't pass like the financial threshold of what you would consider an investment versus speculation. And we think the price will go up because there'll be more demand for it. Yeah, but what is the thing that it's doing? And so I think for those reasons in total, it doesn't pass the test of fitting an impact portfolio right now, but there could be some in the future. You never know. I mean, I think the space there that's interesting is potentially the the crypto... um, can the can the underlying technology, can a blockchain technology be used for impact application? We've not seen big big evidence of that yeah. happening. There's some people sort of making noises around that area. But as you say, technology in itself is not a, no. a an impactful rationale. And also the the other one which is, you know, which if you think about all of the areas that we think are impactful, you might sort of 
some people would make the argument for like a financial inclusion. Uh, yeah. Yes. In, yeah, yeah. An empowerment argument. I mean, I, don't, I still don't see the evidence on that currently in the current no. form because it's not. It seems exclusionary still at the moment. It, it's it's more difficult to 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 participate in yeah. crypto uh, space than it is to participate in the normal financial world, yeah. Yeah. especially where you're looking developing markets, you know, payment technologies and things like that. It's yeah. it's it's mobile phone based. It's it's not it's not that the rails are necessarily broken. It's just access to the rails. So yeah, um, yeah, and then obviously the the traditional investment metrics that you mentioned there, the, the, the speculation bit is just purely, that's called yeah. greater fool theory. You yeah, know, yeah. I'll buy this and someone will buy it off me for more. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the volatility shows no signs of going away. Crypto yeah. markets spike and crash unbelievably, uh, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I don't think you can write off the technology. I don't think you can write off the space. Is it an impact? In, could you make an impact argument for it now? Could you make a... No, could you make a, a proper investment argument for it now? Probably still no. So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Even you mentioned the you know, underlying blockchain. There's still really a lack of, you know, development in actual proper use cases for that yeah. that, that are beyond yeah. niche. I mean, yeah. that's not to say there won't be a major application for it. But at the end of the day, what consumer experience is being made better by a crypto via the underlying technology blockchain at the moment? There, there isn't one, and a lot of it is still theory. To the long-term future, which yeah. may pan out, but you can't invest purely today in a long-term theory. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Sh- should we wrap it up? Let's do it. Okay. Um, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Impact investing from circa five thousand. Thank you for listening to Impact Investing, a podcast brought to you by Circa 5000. Remember, when investing, your capital is at risk, and this podcast is not financial advice. If you like what you hear, then please remember to like, subscribe, and share the podcast.